A new poll says almost half of Americans are interested in socialism. Is socialism endorsed by the Bible? We will discuss. Plus, the church has external threats, but did you also know it has internal threats as well? Sometimes we forget that. We're going to talk about how sometimes the internal threats are more dangerous than the external threats. Today we find out why no one names their kids Ananias or Sapphira. It's your favorite night of the week. This is the Deep End Podcast. Happy Tuesday night to all of you, and happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is coming two days away. If you're watching this on Tuesday night or whenever you're listening or watching this episode, we filmed it two days before Thanksgiving. So I'm excited. Are you excited? Football, family, food, come on, the three F's of Thanksgiving. It is the best day of the year. To you and yours, a very happy Thanksgiving. Make sure you give thanks. And make sure you don't fall into the American trap of, all right, we said thank you, now let's go buy a bunch of crap we don't care about. All right, let's, let's relish Thanksgiving this year. Let's just have some good time giving thanks to a God for what God has done in our lives. Amen? Good to have you. Tuesday night, 7 p.m., welcome in to the Deep End Podcast, where we discuss news, culture, events, and, of course, the scriptures. Bible study on your time, coming to you where you are. Like and subscribe us on youtube.com slash TV. If you're watching us anywhere else or listening to us anywhere else, please do me this service. Subscribe and like. Subscribe and like. Hit the notification bell. And you can catch us every time we go live. YouTube.com slash TV. Welcome into our radio audience, 1240 Woonsocket or FM 99.3, who listen on Thursday nights. And to the Spotify audience, and now also the WEZE Family 590 audience in Boston, Massachusetts. So glad that you're here. If you're here for the first time, we talk about the news. So let's get into that, shall we? This is Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you'd choose if you could choose news. The news you'd choose if you could choose news. Well, what did I think about sharing with you today? I think it's relevant to the conversation we're about to have about Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. I don't know if you've been watching the political debates I don't know if you're paying attention to what's happening in the policy debates of our great country, the United States of America, but there is this undertow of increased interest in becoming socialist. I don't know if you've heard about that. Maybe you don't even know what socialism is. You should read up on what socialism is. Well, evidently, according to a new, a new poll that has just come out from Gallup, and uh, this is from Reason.com, which is a news site that I'm actually starting to like more and more. <laughs> kind of nonpartisan news site, so that's kind of like why I like it. They're not for or against either candidates. But they actually share this story. This kind of interests me. I'm a political junkie. The article is Americans, or I'm sorry, the article is More Americans Want Bigger Government, dash, if it's free. <laughs> so here's what the article basically says. Good news for control freaks and nanny staters across the U.S. Americans' support for a bigger, more active government is edging up potentially creating an, an opening for politicians and activists who want <clears throat> their countrymen to snuggle up in the warm bosom of a nurturing state that provides an ever greater variety of goods, services, and rules for people's lives. There's just one catch. Americans don't want to pay for it. <laughs> Isn't that just like us? Support for a big muscular government falls off a cliff when it comes to the price tag. So the article continues. Since 2010, this is a recent trend. Since 2010, 
The percentage of Americans saying government should do more to solve the country's problems has increased 11 percentage points to 47%. And the percentage wanting government to take active steps to improve people's lives is up 8 points to 42%. Gallup reported this last week. 49% think the government is doing too much, and 29% prefer a government that provides just basic services. But here's the problem, and the article has already said it, People don't want to do this if it's going to cost them anything. So here's how the numbers break down. 71% of Americans are in favor of Medicare for all, but only if it's free. So the Medicare for all is that the government, through the tax dollars of the American taxpayer, will <clears throat> provide you and yours free Medicare, free Medicare, uh, medical care, sorry. <laughs> and uh, no co-payments, no deductibles, all that kind of stuff that we all get frustrated with with our healthcare system. We all understand this. Very, very frustrating. I understand healthcare is broken in many respects. 71% say, yes, the government should provide this free of charge. But that number goes from 71% to all the way down to 48% if it means your taxes get increased. So <laughs> this is just classic American. Yeah, I want that for free. <laughs> that's exactly what we do with almost everything. We like that until we have to pay for it. And the number of Americans who want government to guarantee more, th more things for them is increasing. That's really the bottom line here. Think about where we are now as a country. This is incredibly interesting. For me as a pastor, this is incredibly interesting. You say, Pastor Tim, you are a pastor. Why do you care about politics? Why do you care about this discussion? Well, it matters. Everything in life matters to pastors. Pastors care about you financially. They care about you emotionally. They care about you spiritually. They care about you professionally. So I think it's important that the church speak to this issue. And when we get to the book of Acts in just a few moments, we're going to see something that looks like socialism, but it's not. So pay attention here for a second, because this is really interesting for me to talk about. I think, and this is my, <clears throat> my hypothesis, my theory, I think that the reason why we have more and more people, and especially young people, wanting more an active governmental intervention in our lives, providing us with the things that we used to provide for ourselves. Like we used to go get healthcare if we wanted healthcare. We used to take care of ourselves. We used to get a job. We used to pay for things. If we wanted something, we saved up money, we paid for it. Now we charge everything. So part of the reason why we want more governmental intervention in our lives, I think is because the fundamental reality of the human condition is we need a home base. We need a home base. Now, in times past in this country, the home base was one of two or possibly both institutions if you were lucky. Those two institutions were both invented by God. They're both talked about in the Bible. Those two institutions are the family, the natural biological family wherein a man and woman join themselves together, not for their own gratification, but to start a family, to, to lay down their lives to start a family and live for one another, and then to raise up children after them. This is commanded by God in the very first chapter of the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply. Have kids. Make a family. The family is, I believe, the center of human existence. If you don't have a family, your life really is terrible, and, and there's a lot of people out there like that. So the family has been broken down now for 60-some-odd years, the sexual revolution, cast off restraint. We decided to have sex with whoever we wanted, or at least, at least admonish people to have sex with whoever they wanted. Divorce rates skyrocketed. People started giving up on marriage for the least little problem that they faced. We came up with excuses for divorce, like 
incompatibility or irreconcilable differences. Things that are just so vague, we don't even know what they are. And the family broke down. Think about the kids that you grew up with. I think one out of three of my friends, their parents are now divorced. The kids that I grew up with. I'm one of the lucky ones. My parents are still together. It's like a miracle. I remember on their 50th anniversary, I wrote them a card. I said, thank you so much for staying together. They, they didn't work at it. They love each other. But the fact of the matter is, well, they did work at it, but <laughs> they really did love each other. The fact of the matter is, is that they've always provided, they always provided me, and my wife has the same experience, a home base, a root system, something that you're made to have. Think of every other organic being has this in their lives, a root system, a, a tribe, if you will, a family. Even a tree has roots, right? Well, that's institution number one. Institution number two is the church. So previously in America, before this, you know, this great new independence quest, this great new quest for making a name for myself, making my life what I want it to be, and casting off those old, traditional, fundamental, archaic institutions for me-ism, individuality, celebrate me, that's what we are now, right? We cast off the family and the church. The church, we've pushed to the margins of society. We've called it bigoted, outdated, old-fashioned, archaic. This is, I'm talking about the cultural conversation, not the Christian conversation. And so the breakdown of the family and the disrespect for the church, the two institutions, by the way, that have been given to humanity by God himself so that you and I would flourish, so that we would have a home base. You need a home base. Now, when you don't have a family and you don't have a church, where do you go? Because you still need a home base, don't you? Well, I think that we're in a place now where a lot of people are saying, let's go to the government for that. Let's go to Washington, D.C. And I just think that's kind of ironic. Have you listened to Washington, D.C. lately? These people hate each other. <laughs> they can't agree about anything. You want to join that family? You want to be their children? <laughs> I just, I really think that this is a fruit of uh, casting off the institution of the family, the nuclear family, mom, dad, kids, and the relegation of the church family to old-fashioned, archaic, outdated ideas. And so now we have more and more young people growing up in a country where we have encouraged them so much to define their own reality according to how they see fit. They've adopted this radical individualism, this radical make-something-of-myself mantra, and guess what? They're coming up empty, and now they're looking at their lives and they're saying, do I really have meaning? Loneliness is up. Depression is up. Suicide is up. People are lonelier than ever, sadder than ever. Why? They don't have those institutions in their lives. They need a root system. You need a root system. This is why God gives you the family in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And the good thing about the church is, and this is, well, at least this is how the church should operate, is that if your family gives up on you, the church is there for you, right? That's what the church was intended for. Because think about the church. It was actually started by a guy who was raised without a dad. His Jesus, his father, died when he was young or at some point in his growing up days. He was there when he was, when, when he was born. He was there at 12, but somewhere between 12 and 30, Joseph is no longer there. He, he died. And Jesus had this broken family, if you will. And by the way, his mother had that you know reputation over, hanging over her head that she conceived him outside of wedlock. And that absolutely was an accusation that the religious leaders threw at Jesus. I think it's in John chapter 17. So here you have this, our Savior, the Lord, comes from this kind of broken family, and he starts the church. 
I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? Because guess what? If your natural family fails you, your spiritual family will be there for you. That's how it's supposed to work. So you think about where does all this come from? This attack on the American family, this attack on Christianity, this attack on the church, the structure of the church, it comes from the enemy of your souls. The, the one who wants you lonely, depressed. The one who Jesus said comes to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. 10. He wants you lonely. He wants you miserable. And the way that he does it is he takes those institutions that God created and says, let's get rid of them. Let's destroy them. Let's redefine them. Let's make them something they were never intended to be. And then let's celebrate those forms. And let's, let's give permission to cast off all those archaic, outdated fashions from God. Because after all, he's just out to get you and ruin your life and make you boring, right? And then he convinces you of that and you give up on those things. And then guess what? You're alone. And so what's happening in our age right now? I think this is what's happening. We are looking at a generation that grew up with a good fa- without a good family, or in large part, without a good family, more children. You know, I know some of you, you have a great family, and this is, you know, you don't see this in your life, but the facts are more children are born out of wedlock today than in wedlock. More children are born out of wedlock. Now, a lot of times they're born to cohabitating parents, which, by the way, is not good. It, it, all the reports, all the statistics out there, not good. And so more children are born out of wedlock than in wedlock, and the f- destruction of the nuclear family is is getting becoming more and more prevalent in our age. And then the church has been has been just demonized to such an extent that people have rejected it. Some of that is deserved because sometimes the church stinks. But we're looking to government now. If church and family won't be there, government. So this is why I think today more than ever before in America, we want bigger government. Somebody needs to be there for me just in case. Or somebody needs to give me some Stability, some foundation. I feel bad because, you know, you don't want the government doing that. They don't care about you. They're, they're, there's, there's really no interest there. They're kind of like amoral beings. Not immoral, e- amoral. I know they can seem like they're immoral sometimes, but they're really just amoral. Government's amoral. It's just there to keep the peace. In the scriptures, at least, Romans chapter 13, it's just there to keep the peace. Punish the wrongdoer. Make sure people can live together in some reasonable sense of respect for each other. The government isn't placed by God, but it was never there to care for your soul and your spirit and your emotions. That was family in the church. So here's what I would say. If you're not in a good family, get in a good church. If you need a good church, get yourself to Waters Church in North Attleboro, Woonsocket, Norwood, Massachusetts, and coming soon to Fall River, Massachusetts. So this is important for us because socialism, wherever it has gone, historically, it has not worked. It's never worked. It's never worked. This is a historical fact, and... We do well to pay attention to the fact that the breakdown of these institutions is causing our whole culture to look more and more to government, and bigger government has never worked good for anybody. Why do I bring all this up on the Deep End Podcast and the Book of Acts? Because we're going to look at a passage that actually kind of looks like socialism in action with a Jesus stamp of approval on it. And that brings me to the Book of Acts. So we're in the book of Acts, chapter 5, and chapter 5, we're going to back up just a few verses into chapter 4 to give some context here, because there are very important passages there. We remember that in chapter 3, the, the apostles Peter and John go, they heal the lame man at the gate called Beautiful. Uh, they are they preach the gospel, 5,000 men alone, and not including women and children, are saved or added to the church. 
They're arrested. They're tried. We talked about the conflict outside the church last week. Today, we talk about the conflict within the church. The conflict within the church, and and that's the title of this episode, The Church with Conflict. Here's the subtitle, When God Blesses, the Devil Stresses. (laughs) When God Blesses, the Devil Stresses. So here's what I'm saying. If the devil uh, attacks the church from the outside and it doesn't work, he's got another tactic. And you got to be on, on the lookout for this tactic. He will attack from within. If he can't attack from without, he will attack from within. We're in Acts chapter 5. This, this chapter has special meaning to me as a pastor. Um, I, I started or I, I was with the start team of the church that I pastor currently. Uh, started in 2003. And it's a great church today, but it took a long time to get to where we are, a lot of struggle and a lot of battles. When your church, and for anybody who's ever started a church or been a, start of a, been a part of a church plant, uh, you know that those first couple of years are make it or break it. And sometimes to stop that church from taking root in a community, the devil will attack that church very severely. Well, it happened to our church. We were two years old. It was 2005. I was a young pastor, 29 years old. My wife, 29 years old, just two kids, just, you know, barely making it financially, just trying to believe God for a great church one day. Two years old, and we had just taken this huge step of faith uh, to believe God for a bigger building. We had actually signed on this lease, uh, this six-year lease for this 20,000-square-foot facility. It was a huge step of faith at that time for our church. And wouldn't you know that when you step out in faith, and this is a fundamental fact of the Christian experience. When you step out in faith to do something big for God, Satan is going to come at you with everything he's got because he doesn't want you doing big things for God. Never forget that. Just because you tried something big for God and then you got opposition doesn't mean you made a mistake trying something big for God. That is the enemy trying to stop you and frustrate you and, and choke the faith out of you. Well, that's what almost happened to you my wife and I in 2005. So what happened? Let me give you the synopsis without too many details. There was this couple in our church, in the church, who looked and acted incredibly spiritual. They were leaders of a very important ministry, and they were loved by a lot of people, and they looked very Christian. Christian kids, big, thick Christian study Bibles, chapter and verse kind of people. You know what I mean, chapter and verse. They can quote you chapter and verse like that. They would love, they would, uh, they had a great paying job, or he had a great paying job, and they would take people out to dinner, and they would, they even took my wife and I out to dinner, and they would, you know, pay the whole bill, and, you know, take to nice places, and they had a lot of money, and they had a lot of giving. They gave a lot of money to the church. But listen, they were complete trouble. Complete trouble. They caused one of the most troubling experiences our young church had ever had. This couple, and I just say this very sincerely, sincerely and, and solemnly, this couple had very, very demonic skeletons in their closet. And they tried to put on the Christian face and vilify members of the leadership of our church, people who came with us to start the church, people who we knew and loved and trusted with leadership in the church. Those people attacked them, the, the, the bad people, the skeletons, attacked them elders and leaders of our church, and they here's what they did. They made unsubstantiated accusations of demon worship, and then they tried to kind of win a couple of the elders on their side against my wife and I 
it was I'm I'm not doing justice to the gravity of that season for our lives. It was a tough, tough season. I look back on it to this day and I say, oh, if I had to do it ever all over again, believe me, I would have done it differently. But it was I was young, 29. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, wow, is this what church ministry is like? It was tough. So they accused leadership. They tried to divide the church. And I had to confront them, and we had this a couple of meetings. It was just ugly, awful, yucky. I don't know if you've ever been there. Yucky church meetings. Have you ever been there? Ugh. We had like three of them. We had to ask them to leave the church. We lost like a family with them. By God's grace, you know, one of the elders that they were trying to angle for to kind of come along with them, they, they saw the light and they saw what these people were up to, particularly what he was up to. He was involved in some serious heinous sin, like serious sin. Think of something bad and make it worse. That's what he was involved in, okay? And the funny thing is the guy with the whole, all the sin was, was accusing all the other elders of all kinds of sin that was not true. Well, the week after this came, this came out for our church, and not many people knew what was really going on, I had to get up and share something with the church about what had just, we had just experienced. And I, I went to Acts chapter 5. I went to this passage on Ananias and Sapphira, and I'll never forget, the title of the message was called, <laughs> I was younger then, it was called, I got up on that weekend and I said, here's the title of the message, guys, you're so vain, you probably think this church is about you. <laughs> that was the title, and it was on chapter five, and the reason why is because we're going to look at chapter five now, and Ananias and Sapphira. Here's what chapter five in Acts tells us, it's the catch-22 of the church, the church will experience the grace of God, the power of God, the love of God, the, the, the wonderful working of the gospel as it saves sinners from hell, death, and sin. And when the church starts to do that, the devil will attack. The devil will come in, first from the outside, as we see in Acts chapter 4, and if not, if he can't disturb the church from the outside, he will try to disturb the church from the inside, and that's what today is about. See, the, the devil loves to instigate people in the church, and divide and conquer. We see this clearly in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. The devil loves to elevate, poison people to positions of leadership. Listen to me very carefully. Not everybody who is in Christian leadership is actually there doing the work of God. Now you say, is that true about your church, Pastor Tim? I don't know. I hope so. I think so. I think everybody in my church who's in leadership is doing the work of God. But every once in a while, every once in a while, there's an Ananias, there's a Sapphira. There's somebody who's trying to subvert what God is doing. People are getting saved, people are getting baptized. Devil hates that, devil hates that, because you know why? Because people are getting adopted into the family, that, those institutions that God wanted to, to give them so that they would no longer feel lonely, depressed, and suicidal. And the devil who loves to steal, kill, and destroy attacks the organization that seeks to do that with the power of the gospel. So you have to be aware, and I'm asking you to put on your, or at least raise up your antennae here. This, this episode should help you have a bit of a spiritual antennae, and hear me say it, wherever you have Christianity, you will have counterfeit Christianity. Wherever you have real Christian leaders, you will have false Christian leaders. Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, many will say, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many works? Those are leadership gifts. 
And, he, and, he, and he's going to say to those people, depart from me. I never knew you. Workers of lawlessness. Be mindful, Christian. There are counterfeit Christians abounding in the church. Now, we do well to pay attention to this because the common assumption is that when you go to a church, everybody in the church is wonderful. Everybody is nice and kind and loving and sweet. After all, they go to church. Their kids are in Sunday school. They look put together. They must be good. They must be godly. They love Jesus. Surely they're really spiritual. Of course I can trust them. Not all the time. Mm-mm. There's a problem. It's called the human heart. And, I, and if you read the Bible, you will realize this very quickly, that the heart of man is disgusting. It's in bad shape. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17, 9. Mark 7, verse 21, Jesus says, from within, from the heart, come what? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within the human heart. This is nothing new. Genesis 6, 5 is on the first book. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord looked and saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 51, verse 5, David said, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was, I was born this way. I was born evil. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, I know that in me dwells no good thing in my flesh. In other words, Paul the apostle, the greatest evangelist the church has ever seen, the guy who Jesus made his kind of right-hand man in bringing the gospel to the nations, that man says, there's nothing good in me, in my flesh. My flesh is evil. So is yours. So is mine. The problem with the church is the heart of man. And that's why the church needs to rely on the Holy Spirit to change the heart. <laughs> that's what we need the Holy Spirit for. Because you can't change people. I don't know if you've ever tried to change anyone. You can't change people. Only the Holy Spirit can change people. So just keep that Christian antennae up, people. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is really a Christian. Not every Christian leader who says Christian-y things and spiritual things is really a true Christian. Keep the antennae up. You say, well, how will I know? You'll know. Time will tell. Trust God, but understand and expect that sometimes when God blesses, the devil stresses and he'll use Christians, or at least quote-unquote Christians, to do it. This is what Acts chapter 4 and 5 are going to show us. Let's get to the text. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. So, summing again the reality of the New Testament church, and this is why we talked about socialism in our news segment. Here's what it says, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Can we just look at that and just say, wow, that is so cool. This is the definition of the church in the first century. There was not a needy person among them. Well, why? Because it says why. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. Guess what that is? This is the church being the church, taking care of people, giving, helping people out. This is why when you castigate the church in a nation or a society, people will go to government and say, give me. Because why? Well, I, I don't go to church. You told me that the church is outdated and old and stuffy and traditional and, and bigoted and, and 
you know, anti-science, and so I can't go there anymore. Well, government, give me, because you know what? There's always going to be people with need, and it is the church's job to step up and say, we're here to meet those needs. <laughs> That's that second institution made by God. So one of the key descriptive elements of the New Testament church was they had, and, and notice uh, what it says in uh, verse 32. Well, I don't have this on the screen, but on verse, in verse 32 it said that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So right there, that verse, and the, all, all this sharing, and everybody taking care of everybody, a lot of people say, well, there you go, socialism. It's in the Bible. See, it's godly. Jesus was a socialist. No, you, you ignored the text. You've ignored what the text teaches, okay? Socialism is government telling people, share. This, in Acts chapter 4, is the Holy Spirit changing hearts so that people share. Now, you want the second one. You want the Holy Spirit doing the work in people's hearts so that they look at their stuff differently. See, the Holy Spirit changes our view of two things. It changes our view of people and things. It changes our view of people and things. It, here's what the Holy Spirit actually does. It makes us tight with people and loose with things. When you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are tight with things and loose with people. Loose being, you can just disregard them. You don't care. The Holy Spirit comes in and flips it and says, now, be tight with people. Get yourself a good church. Get yourself some brothers and sisters in Christ. Be tight. Be close. Love one another. Oh, and your things? Share it. Give it away. If somebody needs something, you give it to them. Why? Because God will take care of you, take care of them. He's already blessed you. Bless others. And by the way, those who say socialism is biblical have ignored history as well because socialism and communism usually go hand in hand with atheism. Communist China, the USSR, all kinds of other communist countries in the world, China today, actually, uh, Cuba. Atheist governments. And I think about communism is really just mankind trying to force upon people from the outside what only God can do in them from the inside. Because here's what generosity is. Generosity is godly. It is not governmently. <laughs> I love what Ronald Reagan used to say. The, the scariest sentence in the English language is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Because <laughs> that's just not true. All right? Generosity is a godly virtue. That comes from, he's the one who gives us everything. So if you're looking at government to give you, you're looking at government for the wrong reasons, not the biblical reasons. I'm just telling you, you can vote for whoever you want. I'm just telling you what the scriptures teach. So the scripture is teaching that the Holy Spirit's work in our lives makes us loose with things and tight with people. And then it goes on in uh, Acts chapter 4. Let's look at the next verse, because here's what it says, verse 36. Thus Joseph, and it's going to give us this, detail, uh, this detailed example of sharing. His name is Joseph, but we now know him as Barnabas. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, bar, and nabas means encouragement, bar means son, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, what did he do? Look at this. He sold a field that belonged to him. That's interesting because he was a Levite, and according to the Old Testament law, guess what? Levites were not supposed to own land. 
That's an Old Testament principle. But somehow, you know, obviously Jews in those days were so detached in many respects from the Old Testament law that they just kind of ignored a lot of passages. Well, Barnabas gets saved, and guess what the Holy Spirit makes him do? Makes him live up to his Levite status. Makes him a true spiritual Levite. And anyway, it says this. He's a native of Cyprus, and we'll talk about Cyprus later uh, in this series. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay. A couple facts about Barnabas. I love Barnabas. You, while we go through this book study, will love Barnabas too. First off, he's a Hellenist Jew. Hellenist. Hellenist meaning uh, Greek-influenced. He was not born and raised in the nation of Israel or the territory of Israel. He was most likely born, actually it says it there, from Cyprus, which is outside of the land to the north. And he's Greek-influenced. He's in Jerusalem now, because again, Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, brings these people, all the Jews scattered throughout the nations, to Jerusalem for that feast. Three times a year, they come for three different feasts. He's a Levite. He's not supposed to own land. Now he's selling land. He's living up to his Levite status. But the Bible talks a lot about Barnabas in the book of Acts, and I want to make mention of something. He's called the son of encouragement. Please note that. The son of encouragement. What is encouragement? Well, if you, look at, if you look at Barnabas's life and what he does, I think that's the definition, the biblical definition of encouragement. Some people whittle encouragement down to just say nice things to people. That's encouraging. Well, that is encouraging, but, but I think it's got to go further than that. I think it has to go further than, good job, buddy. Like, right? Encouragement has to have action behind it. So let's talk about what Barnabas does in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4 here. He sells a field, gives the money to the church to benefit the poor. Acts chapter 9, wonderful passage where Paul the Apostle is recently saved and the Jews want to kill him and he has to, very humiliatingly, uh, has to be uh, let down the outside wall out of a window through a basket just to spare his life. Think about how humiliating that is for a grown man. (laughs) And then he tries to go and make friends with the Apostles and the Apostles are like, we're not talking to you, you wanted to kill us last week. And it is Barnabas who goes and takes Paul by the hand and introduces him to the apostles and makes peace between Paul and the apostles. That was what Barnabas did. It's a beautiful passage. We'll get to it later, Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 11, he goes to Antioch to encourage the small, struggling church in Antioch. In Acts chapter 11, he also helps Paul bring relief funds to the struggling Christians in Jerusalem because of a famine. In Acts chapter 13, he and Paul are inaugurated on Paul's first missionary journey, which brings the gospel to the nations. And in Acts chapter 15, he reports to the Jews the valid conversion of the Gentile nations to the faith. It's really cool how many key moments in the book of Acts Barnabas is a key player in. And this, I say, is what gives you the right to call yourself an encourager. Faith in action, not just saying, good job. Faith in action, bringing people together. That's what we see Barnabas doing. When Paul wants to give up on John Mark, it is Barnabas who comforts John Mark and, and, and believes in him and, and partners with him. And later at the end of Paul's life in First Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, He's, he's talking to Timothy. He says, hey, by the way, let John Mark know that he was such a help to me. So Paul probably made a mistake about John Mark. Barnabas stuck with him. We'll get to that too. Wherever people needed to be brought together for the cause of Christ and the cause of mission, there was Barnabas holding both hands and bringing them together. Barnabas believed that whatever it took in terms of talent and time and treasure, it was worth it to help the church be the church and bring people 
home because loneliness stinks, right? A lot of Christians like to say, I have the gift of encouragement, but all they're talking about is words. Where's the action? Where are the Barnabas action to go out there and help bring people together? Where's the giving, like selling stuff and giving the money to people? Where's the working and going and putting feet to your faith so that others can hear about Jesus? Anyway, the book of Acts chapter 4 ends with this illustration of Barnabas because it's going to give us a contrasting illustration in Ananias and Sapphira in the next chapter. Let's get there. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, now you just have to make sure that you note that, it is Ananias who does this with his wife's knowledge. So Ananias is the instigator and the thinker, and he sells a piece of property, but he keeps back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so then... This happens. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Okay, so... All those who say socialism is Christian, socialism is what we should have, communism is Christian, um, not according to Peter. Can we look a closer, take a look at that verse again up on the screen? Because look what Peter says. Peter's basically like, hey, why did you let this happen? And then he says, hey, that land was yours. It was yours. The Bible is pro-private ownership, socialism and anti-private ownership. The Bible says, do not steal. You cannot have a law called do not steal if you do not believe that some people can own some things. So pro-private ownership, nothing wrong with that. Ananias does not sin here by owning land. And then, by the way, look at what it says further. He says, and after it was sold, the money was also yours. Not a problem to have money. Notice that, that Peter does not call out Ananias for owning land or having cash. It's yours. That's what we believe is good Jews, as Peter said. That's what we believe. We're supposed to own stuff. We're supposed to steward it. It's really God's. We steward it. It's managed by us for a season. But then he says this. Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Put the two whys together. Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? And the earlier question, why has Satan filled your heart? So a lot of people say, well, does that mean Ananias was demon-possessed? Not necessarily. It means, here's what it means. Remember, well, actually, no. We, ha- we have to answer a question before we answer that question. We need to ask this question. What was the sin in Ananias? Okay, first, it's not that he didn't give the whole amount to the church. You know what Ananias could have totally done? He could have sold the land, and he could have said to the apostles, I sold this land, and I'm going to give half to the church, and I'm going to keep half. And the apostles would have said, cool. He could have said to the church, I'm going to give you... 10%, because that's the tithe, and I'm going to keep 90. And the apostles would have said, great. No, there's a deeper sin here. And the sin was he wanted to leverage his acts 
on the outside to make him look better than he really was on the inside. That's the sin. And you know where he got that idea? <coughs> Satan. That's why Peter says, Satan has filled your heart. Because who in heaven wanted to make himself look better than he really was? Lucifer, the angel that led a third of the angels of heaven out of heaven in rebellion against God. Why? Isaiah tells us why. Ezekiel 38 tells us why. Because he wanted he wanted to be celebrated. He wanted to be as God. He wanted to make a name for himself. The exact thing that Ananias and Sapphira wanted to do, they got that idea from Satan. So when Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? It's not necessarily that Ananias is demon-possessed or satanically uh, possessed. It's that he's just following the tra trajectory of Satan. And you have to realize something here. The devil is still doing this in the church. He is constantly trying to instigate people to follow his path. It's all about you. The church should meet your needs. You should have it better than that person over there. This is all the language of the devil. You deserve better than you're getting. You should be celebrated. You know, I don't understand why that person has that position and you, being more gifted and more godly, you don't have it. See, what happened was Ananias and Sapphira saw Joseph Barnabas get celebrated and they thought, we want a piece of the action. So let's do this. Let's sell it, but we're only going to give some and we'll say it's all and then we'll all look good and the church will celebrate us and we'll have our names in the Bible and it's so cool. Wrong. So what happens? This happens. Verse 5. <clears throat> when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I just think it's funny. Like, <laughs> Imagine being part of the youth ministry of the early church. <laughs> what, are you, what are we doing today? Oh, we're burying Ananias. Why? Well, he lied to the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's our, that's our youth event this week. <laughs> Today we have bonfires and cookouts. Back then they were burying blasphemers. Okay, anyway. God strikes Ananias dead. And maybe you, like me, look at this and say, whoa, God, why? Well, God has done this before. God has done this before. In the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offer strange fire to the Lord, and he instantly puts them to death. In Joshua chapter 7, Achan steals some of the spoils from uh, Jericho, and the whole community is commanded to not kill just Achan, but his whole family, put him to death. They stone him and bury him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah is there steadying the ark as it's coming into Jerusalem. He just puts his hand on the ark, the symbol, the symbol of God's presence, and the Lord strikes him dead instantly. Three times in the Old Testament, this happened. At the directive or direct intervention of God, now, here's the important commonality between those three Old Testament people put to death by God and this New Testament couple put to death by God. Here's the commonality. Are you ready for it? They were all believers. They were all members of the covenant community. It wasn't unbelievers God was putting to death. It was believers God was putting to death. Judgment, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 17, begins in the house of God. 
So before you get all worked up about who you think God should kill, watch out, especially if you're a Christian. It starts with you. And maybe you say, well, why doesn't God do this more regularly today? Like, why doesn't God kill false teachers today? Like, shouldn't that happen? Like, as soon as you start leading people astray, or how about pedophile priests? As soon as a priest touches a a young, innocent child immorally, shouldn't that priest instantly die? Yes, they should. But I want you to know a couple things. It doesn't happen today, but it still does happen on occasion. I'm going to not mention a name, (laughs) but I do want to talk about something that happened last year, May, actually. There, There was a false teacher on a blog, very popular, becoming more and more popular, and starting to influence a lot of solidly Christian uh, people. And the teachings on this person's blog were seductive and dangerous. And uh, notable godly leaders were starting to listen to this person. I was starting to like get really annoyed. Anyway, within a week, this person came down with a terrible problem, physical problem, and then died like in three days. I, I, I honestly believe it was the judgment of God for, for what could have been destructive doctrine growing with intensity. I think, I think God did that. Now, some people might say, wow, you're a hater. Well, God's done this before, and he has every right to do it again. It's, he's God, not me. Uh, secondly, I believe this sort of thing happens, God striking people dead like this that quickly. Whenever he inaugurates a new era of redemptive history, so think about um, Nadab and Abihu, the temple has just been erected, the priestly sacrificial, sacrificial system has just been inaugurated, and they go in there, you know, laissez-faire, you know, Johnny come late, these, we'll do whatever we want. And God says, no, you won't. This is a new day. And Uzzah, when the ark is coming into Jerusalem for the first time in years, and he tries to study the ark, and God says, no, you will not treat me with contempt. And now here, here in Acts chapter 5, God has just inaugurated the church. The gospel is being preached. People are getting saved. The mission that Jesus shed his blood for has been started. And you two are going to take at the very outset of this movement and use it for your own glorification? No, you won't. And I think that at those inaugurating periods in, in redemptive history, God says, don't mess. Don't mess with my house. This is serious stuff I'm up to. Thirdly, I think we need to see the, the Ananias and Sapphira death as a picture. Just as the lame man getting healed is a historical fact, but also a picture for our salvation, that apart from the name of Jesus, we cannot be healed and have the strength to enter into the temple, the presence of God. So to Ananias and Sapphira here are a picture or a parable, a historical fact as well, but a picture or parable for us today saying to you and to me that if we let our own glorification start to take precedence in our Christian life, we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually cut off from Christ. Because what is the life of Christ? The life of Christ is humble service, laying down your life for others, saying no to the flesh, saying no to your own glory, and saying yes to the glory of God. That is what it means to be in union with Christ. He who was in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, Philippians 2, but emptied himself and made himself a servant and and became a servant and, and obeyed until death, even death on a cross. That's who we are spiritually united with through the Holy Spirit by faith. And if we're going to have his life in us, it can't be about us. It has to be about the glory of Jesus through us. So here's what it is. It's a picture. It's a picture of 
those in the church, and there are many, who use the church for their own glorification and vilify and seek to divide and conquer just like Satan did in heaven, that person is spiritually dead already. So the physical death of Ananias and Sapphira was just a physical representation of an inward reality. What happens later, verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. She's complicit. And what happens? And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Verse 9. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And then the youth group comes in again. <laughs> when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. You say, well, why did God do that? Why, why, why the two deaths? Well, a couple of things. Theologically, scripturally, by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall all things be established. That's Deuteronomy 17, Matthew 18. But God is also making something patently clear. And listen, this is a warning for you who go to church. Don't align with the people who seek their own glory. See, it was, remember, I told you to mark it, that it was Ananias' decision. It was his call to sell the land and then lie to the church. Sapphira was just complicit. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a lesson for the church to say, don't be complicit when people do this kind of thing. You see somebody out for their own glory. You see somebody gossiping and slandering other Christians. You see, like we saw back in 2005, you see somebody making unsubstantiated accusations against eldership and leadership and people in the church. Don't you join in. God's going to hold you accountable for what they're doing. Be careful. Be careful. That's what I think. That's why I think the three-hour period and her dying separately from her husband happens that way. God is saying, don't join in when people have evil deeds in their hearts. Okay, verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So fear <clears throat> is not what you think of as like scared of. Fear here is respect. Fear is respect, respect for the church, that we want the church to get back what it has lost in this culture and has um, been, I think, uh, created in some part because of the church's faults and in some part because of those who are children of Satan and, and want the church to be vilified in a culture because they know the benefits that a, church, a good church can bring to people's lives. And so there's a couple interesting things about verse 11 here. It's the first time in the book of Acts the, the word ekklesia in Greek for church is used. And I think it's beautiful that the first time that the word church is used in the book of Acts, it is referring to the church with great fear, great reverence for the church. You know what we need back in this country? We need reverence for this sacred institution started by the Son of God. I really think that this is why our politics have become so heated and so contentious today. You remember the old days when it was impolite to talk about politics in public? Like you never did around the Thanksgiving table because it's impolite. Now we're flinging stuffing at each other at the Thanksgiving table. What, because of what? Because you don't like Donald Trump and that person does like Donald Trump? I mean, really? You're going to let somebody in Washington destroy your family? Are you that shallow? Really? Why is it so contentious? Here's why. Because... In the old days, when, when people went to, uh, when people voted different ways, they ended up in church on Sunday sitting next to each other. 
<laughs> and, and, and by doing so, they used to send a message to each other. I might disagree with you politically, but the church is more important. And today, because again, church and family, ch- family's been broken down and the church has been shoved to the margins of society. People need connection. They need tribes. They need family. And we're actually doing the insane thing of making political alliances our family or letting political alliances even destroy and divide our family. Whoa, whoa, not good. Not good for you, not good for our heart, not good for our spirit. And you think about it, again, this has been systematic for many years. I've been watching a lot of movies over my, the course of my life. I just think about how many times you, re- you watch a movie, how many times is the main antagonist a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian? You ever see this? Like, I got a couple of pictures here on the screen, like uh, Misery, uh, uh, Kathy Bates' character. She's a Christian. Believes God is teaching her to torture this guy, uh, or the warden from Shawshank Redemption, Bible believing, Bible thumping guy, the good book, right? More recently, The Shape of Water. Who's the chief antagonist in that movie? He's the Bible believing Christian, or Twelve Years a Slave, the the, the most vicious slave owner in the story, is the one who's thumping the Bible over people's heads. It's been happening for years. There's nothing new. Footloose. Remember Footloose? Love that movie. Bible-thumping guys telling everybody to stop enjoying life. Or Mandy Moore in the cult classic, Saved, where that's, have you ever seen that movie? That basically just makes a mockery of evangelical Christians. Like, you like it, it's nobody's business. It's funny how they never do that with Islam or Hinduism. <laughs> it's always just Christianity that, that gets, uh, gets vilified. But anyway, our culture and our world and our communities have lost this respect that we should have for the church. Because when we lose respect for this sacred institution, we lose. When we lose respect for the institution that the Son of God came and shed his blood to inaugurate and establish, we lose. We need respect again. So what happens when there's respect in the church? Now many signs and wonders, verse 12, were done regularly among the people. You know, remember this, just think about this. There's respect for the church now, and now many signs and wonders were done. Remember when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and the Bible says that they despised him in his heart, and he dishonored him, and he said, surely a prophet is not without honor except only in his hometown. In other words, the only place you can't get honor in your, is in your hometown. And because they disrespected him, he couldn't do many mighty works there. That's what it says, literally, almost word for word from Acts chapter 5. In other words, if you get respect for the church some good things will start happening in your life and in your community. So they were done, these signs and wonders by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest, I love this, <laughs> none of the rest dared join them, but, pe- but people held them in high esteem. So none of the rest joined them. Now, just pay attention to the next verse, because it's tied to that verse. And more than ever, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, <clears throat> so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, and Peter came by. At least his shadow might fall on some of them. Again, mighty works. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Powerful, mighty works as respect for the church is restored because God puts Ananias and Sapphira, these glory-seeking, self-absorbed, me Christians to death. Christians, quote-unquote Christians, to death. How do we reconcile, by the way, uh, verse, um, verse 14 
with verse 13? How do we reconcile the fact that none of the rest joined them, verse 13, but then more than ever, believers are added to the Lord? Because there's a difference between those who try to join the church for their own glory and those the Lord adds to the church by his grace. And that's what we have here. So, to sum it up, to remind us, actually, last week's conversation, the church will experience conflict with, on, on the outside. It'll also experience conflict on the inside. And just like conflict on the outside, the conflict on the inside is inevitable. There's always going to be false Christians. Wherever you have true Christianity, there's counterfeit Christianity. It's going to come from unexpected places, sometimes leaders, sometimes lay workers, sometimes Sunday school teachers, sometimes choir directors. You never know where it's going to come from. You never know. It's going to be good for the church. God's going to get glory out of it. You just got to press through, just like we did 2005. By the way, 2005, that story I just shared, the people that were being kind of like um, recruited by that bad couple, they're like all-stars in our church to this day. They're like key leaders in our church to this day. They saw the light, and God, through that horrible experience that Cheryl and I had to go through, they were fused to the church, and they've been a blessing to us to this day. So it's always going to work out for our good. And then it's going to be leveraged for the gospel to be preached. The church experiences conflict. There's no getting around it. Okay, that's the, type, that's the teaching of the book of Acts. Glad you were here. I'm uh, excited to share that content with you. But you know what? We have some time. And guess what we're going to do? We're actually going to get to ask anything. Woohoo! <laughs> I know my production team over there is shocked. Okay, so let's get to ask anything, shall we? A question came in from one of you, and you can always ask a question by uh, going to 508-316-9333, texting it for anonymous questions, or just in the comments below. And always let us know in the comments where you're watching. Oh, and by the way, if you're watching on YouTube anywhere else or listening anywhere else, I want to say it again. Make sure you go to youtube.com slash TV and subscribe there. But anyway, here's a question. Uh, hey, Deep Enders, will Pastor Tim give a sermon on false teachings and how we should deal with it? Like, should we leave it alone, mind our own business, and focus on our salvation or are we to evangelize them, even though we have a different way of thinking, teaching of God and Christ, contrary not or not, or not to what the Bible teaches? What are we to do? Love the podcast, by the way. Sorry, one more thing to add. Wouldn't allowing false teachers create false converts, which in turn would hurt them in the long run? My wife likes to point to the verse where Christ mentions, for whoever is not against us is for us, Mark 940, uh, which I understand, but wouldn't that set those people up for failure? Okay, well, that's a great question, and I'm so glad that kind of, this kind of question comes in. We kind of just talked about it. There's false Christians. So it's actually very relevant to the content. What do you do when you see a false teacher? Well, uh, remember that Jesus says that there is, there are all, there's going to be false teachers, but you will know them by their fruits. Now, we take that, you'll know them by their fruits, and we apply that to regular Christians. That's not the context for when Jesus says it. It's, he's talking about false teachers. You'll know false teachers by their fruits. So check the fruit. And... In my opinion, if you don't know the false teacher personally, what can you do? Like, are they on television? You can't talk to them. Can you warn people who you love and care about about these people? Sure, and you should. I don't particularly like to name names, at least on this podcast and especially on my pulpit ministry at my church here at Waters Church. I, I'm not a fan of that. I know a lot of guys out there, they love to name names. I, I'm not a big fan of that. I think you got to care for your own. And here's the thing. Who has God given to you to care for spiritually? Uh, and if you're not caring for anyone spiritually and you're a strong Christian, well, why aren't you caring for somebody spiritually? Get involved in a small group. Get involved in your church. Start caring for people spiritually. And, and this is what I think is the best reaction to false teachers or the threat of false teachers is you be instrumental in getting the good food into the sheep. 
So help your pastor out. Sign up to serve at your church. Get involved. Do something. Help out in the children's ministry. See, we're all, we're all interested in being um, spiritual authority police officers with our little wills, our little whistles and our little batons. Hey, stop that. Beat them down. Don't teach that. Well, wait a second. Fine. <laughs> but maybe we need actually more teachers, more servants, more people who will say, I'm not going to police everybody I can't care about. What I am going to do is I'm going to find some people I can care about and I'm going to bring them the true nourishing word of God. That's my advice. Uh, by the way, Mark, Mark 4, 940, when it says, whoever is not against us is for us. Well, that guy was casting out, de- the, the person that Jesus is referring to there was casting out demons in Jesus' name. So he was doing something good for people. So I can't, you can't blanket statement that statement to say, well, everybody who preaches Jesus is good because they're for us and not against us. No, no, no. Take it in context. The guy was casting out demons, doing something good in Jesus' name, and the disciples had a problem with it because they weren't part of their club. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't stop them. Whoever's not against us is for us. That's the context. Always read passages in context. Okay, next question. We do have time for that. One more question. Um, oh, wait. That's an outdated question. I'm going to skip that question. Here we go. This, oh, this is a funny question. Let's, let's end with a funny question, lighthearted question. This sign is being shared on social media lately. Uh, God prefers kind atheists over hateful Christians. And I had time to prepare this, so I'll put this on the screen. <laughs> you ever see these church signs? This should be like a, a comic routine for some late-night TV host. God prefers kind atheists over hateful Christians. Uh, <laughs> the question is, what, what are my thoughts about that, that quote? Well, my thoughts are it's a church sign, and uh, don't get too worked up over what you see on church signs. How about that? Um, I don't think God prefers anybody, to be honest with you. I think God is seeking to save people who don't prefer him. And this is, this is biblical teaching. It, it's not American Christianity. It's biblical Christianity. Uh, no one seeks God. No one is good. No one is looking for him. It is he looking for us. Jesus is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes and finds the lost sheep. Jesus is the one who came to find and save you. So God's not really in the preferring business. (laughs) Uh, God is in the saving business. My question to you is, has he found you? And if he's found you, uh, tell somebody about it and celebrate it. It's the best thing that ever happened to you. Okay? Subscribe, youtube.com slash TheDeepNTV, facebook.com, TheDeepNTV, instagram.com slash TheDeepNTV, twitter.com slash TheDeepNTV. Always check us out on TheDeepN.TV, and let's have a little for the church, shall we? May God bless you. I'll see you. Happy Thanksgiving, and I'll see you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.